whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. Welcome to Breakfast in Montana again. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And man, we are excited about this episode because we had a fabulous conversation with the one and only Doug Peacock, who's an expert on grizzly bears and... A prince among men. And a prince among men. A very interesting fellow. Um, and we read his book, Grizzly Years, which is an incredible book. In the beginning... I went into the wilderness to regroup and pull my life together. But it was soon clear that there would be no hiding. Any image of grizzly country as an Eden walled off from a troubled world was a distortion of truth. Not every journey felt primordial and no trip unfolded as a simple, natural idol in a vacuum. Although I found moments dominated by wild beauty, cultural distractions, the sound of a distant aircraft or scraps of human debris intruded on every day. I may not have seen these forces at work, but I was always aware they were shading what I saw and influencing how I acted. Meanwhile, I got what I could from these landscapes. These were times, of course, when only a big wild expanse of hundreds of miles of tundra forest or desert gave me what I wanted. But usually I could get what I needed in a place like Yellowstone. Though only a quarter of a mile from any road or development, the lodgepole forest felt a lightier way if you put some effort into it. While the war in Vietnam raged, the grizzlies were having problems of their own. Even a stunned war veteran walking the backcountry of the Yellowstone Plateau during the early and mid-70s could tell something was wrong. For one thing, I didn't see many grizzly bears. Later, I heard the government was killing them. I never found out whether a National Park Service at Yellowstone was guilty of the cover-ups, the animal equivalent of Watergate, of which they were accused. Having just returned from a place where things like paranoia and schizophrenia yielded perfectly valid versions of reality, I had a hard time buying the official time line. I had developed a habit of paying attention to the things people bothered to lie about. The same kind of skepticism I learned from the military attack carried over into my reading of the welfare of grizzly bears. Vietnam had hardened my doubts. I haven't read this since I wrote it. Wow. (laughs) These considerations naturally colored how I saw things. The past was never far behind in those days. I had lost trust in the powers that ran the war rooms, regardless of whether There were the generals who ran the big war in Vietnam, or the politicians and bureaucrats who ran the smaller one against the grizzly. You could not miss the corrupting potential of power, the gravity towards self-serving lies, the means over end thinking that cemented my lowbrow alliances. I have never considered it coincidental that I became mixed up in the problems of the grizzly bear. 
My little quest into the wilderness to lick my war wounds was never imagined without difficulty. I might have been numb, but I was not indifferent. Once I came to know the Grizzlies and committed myself to trying to keep a few of them around, all traces of complacency vanished. The idea of anybody killing off the Grizzlies of Yellowstone drove me crazy. These bears saved my life. The Grizzly was the living embodiment of wild nature, the original landscape that was once our home. The fact that they had not been hounded into extinction told me America still had a chance to turn things around. I believed this, despite the evidence of Vietnam. I believed it because I had to. <laughs> Do people know him for this book? I mean, this, this book was amazing. I, I was completely shocked at how good this book was. And the reason was because um, he takes you right into the, not only into his his experience with grizzly bears, which he had a lot of incredibly close encounters with and like almost got killed several times. <laughs> but he also has, does an amazing job of paralleling that with his experience in Vietnam. And that those passages are just stunning. The whole book is... I mean, it's really, yeah, vivid and you know the way he does draw you in, you know, to me is the hallmark of a of a classic. Yes. And to that end, I would like to point out that when we were talking to him, and I, I looked at the copyright page to see when did this book come yeah. out? Because um, I remember when it came out, nineteen ninety one. Yeah, thirty years. Um, so it's, I think it's held up. It's still mm-hmm. in print. You know, it's not only a classic in the grizzly lit, but I think it's a great Vietnam memoir. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us about grizzly years. You did you? How long were you back from Vietnam when you started this book? Was well, you know, the book. I, I I never planned on being a writer. Yeah, or even thought about it. But, you know, I can write. I knew that from a long time ago. Just, I'm, I'm a pretty good storyteller. The story of the book is, you know, I ran into grizzlies within months of coming back from Vietnam because I couldn't be around anybody. I couldn't yeah. be around people. I was really whacked out. And in one place I've always been comfortable is the wilderness, mm-hmm. you know. And it's... it's it, since I was a teenager, it's, that's been the Rocky Mountains. You know, I'm very comfortable down in the deserts, too. But, you know, the, when the grizzly bears hibernate, I tend to hightail it south. And, uh, but so, you know, I came back in the spring of uh, 1968. I'd been, you know, it, it, it's a hellacious time in the war. It was, yeah. you know, the Tet Offensive, and I endured... Everywhere I went, the Tet Offensive was happening. Oh. I even, I, and you know, I escaped, you know, all of my, I was a Green Beret and all of my, uh, you know, my mobile guerrilla team was at Long Bay. And on uh, no, on February 7th, 1968, they got overrun by Russian tanks and NVA. And everybody got, you know, there's 24 Americans, 10 of them got killed, the rest got captured or wounded. I was in the hospital. Oh. Wow. And even the hospital got hit. You know, there were sappers on the wire. And then I went back out to this 
remote A camp where I'd been most of the year. You know, it's my favorite place because I, you know, it was a place the war didn't really get to until sometime in '67, and uh, it just, you know, it was kind of a local war. That was a relief. You mm. know, you kind of knew who was shooting at you. Oh. And if you didn't mess with them much, they they were about they, they didn't hit you so often. But I went back out there, and on the way out of Vietnam, I flew over My Lai when it was happening. Wow. I didn't know that, but we got sure. shot at. I looked down, and I had been in the ground there, or I had been, you know. And, uh, you know, it took a, over a year, but I saw those pictures in Life magazine. Uh, they really changed my life. Yeah. So, you know, I got back, and uh, in March, it's still snow in the mountains, so, you know, I kind of poked my way through the wilderness of Arizona and Utah for the, and waiting for the snows to melt. And then I... Uh, I crawled into the east side of the Wind River Range. I had a little map, and there was a big blank spot on the map mm. that I knew I had to go see. <laughs> there are grizzlies in it now, but mm. there, there, weren't, there weren't then. There were a lot of black bears. But it was, uh, and uh, and I had a malaria attack, and I had and I, I spent like a month by myself in there. So did you? Um have you always kept a journal? Like, did you keep a journal on all these trips into the desert and the... A lot of them, uh-huh. And so, when you sat down to write the book, is that how you how it came about, or it just... You, all, uh, all well, I did, I did have field notes on, on yeah. grizzlies, you know, and... Uh, did you keep a journal in Vietnam, too? A real sketchy one. Okay. On occasion, I just, you know... It was, I was really busy over there. Because the scenes that you wrote about from that were pretty pretty damn vivid. Yeah. I mean, all of it's really vivid. Yeah. It's like your memory for detail is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, Grizzly Years was, uh, it was pretty easy to write, you mm. know, because I, I, I did remember. And I, I, writing went really fast. I started in Huckleberry Lookout up in Glacier. Mm. In the 70s, so it had been almost, you know, they didn't publish this sucker until 10 years after it. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. I had, uh, and you know, the only reason I sat down and did it is somebody offered me some money and I had a, I had a, I had a baby girl by that time. Mm. <laughs> mm. Okay, one of the things that was interesting to me about this story was, you know, you, you talk, you just mentioned that you were uncomfortable around people and... Um, so, you know, the, the fact that you sought out this wilderness was, makes so much sense. But it was also kind of interesting to me that, and I've heard talk, people talk about coming back from war and being bored because they kind of got addicted to the excitement of it. Sure. And uh, you had so many close calls with grizzlies, it, it felt a little bit like you were um, sort of recapturing some of that adrenaline rush with your close calls a little bit maybe <laughs> well it looked like it there was never quite it was conscious but right that's exactly what i needed it's mm -hmm. something as potent as as war as combat right you know to at least lift me out of that world and drop in another one much more aimed in the direction of life you know i i haven't had any fear of grizzlies for about 50 years just because I've had so many close calls, I know. And I know, I know if I if I behave correctly, mm -hmm. 
they're not going to touch me, even though I've been charged dozens of times, a couple yeah. dozen times well, anyway. Yeah, some of those close calls were amazing. And, uh, you know, um, a couple summers ago, just before I walked my daughter down the aisle, we went up, went, in, went into Yellowstone, climbed up on top of one of the buttes up there, and uh, on top of this butte are big glacial erratics, and the wind was just howling, you know, it just uh, was blowing 40, 50 miles an hour. So we were kind of huddled under a big glacial erratic, and all of a sudden I saw her face, you know, mm. and, you know, just coming over a rise right into us was a mother grizzly with a yearling cub. Mm. And, and all I said was, don't move. Mm. And, uh, it took three or four minutes. Bear reared and slobbered and do do what they do when they're trying to check you out, and and the yearling was rearing too. And, and, but you know, she calmed down in four or five minutes, and walked right over, right past us. And I mean, fifteen feet away. You wow. Know? And he asked us. Uh, we wanted to pair him up with. Bill Kittredge, because uh, Mr. Kittredge just passed away not too long ago, and I, we knew that um, Doug was friends with him, so we we asked Doug which book he would like us to choose from Mr. Kittredge's oeuvre. <laughs> What's the name of the book? He suggested uh, The Nature of Generosity. So, that's the book we're going to talk about, but we're really going to talk more about Kittredge in general and um, sort of his legacy. Um, so he was the director of the writing program in Missoula, or the yes. of the whole English department. No, he was the re- director of just the creative writing program, and he was there for forty years. But I don't think he was probably the director the whole time. Right, and if I recall correctly, my my buddy uh, Earl Gans said that he hired ah both Hugo and. Wow. So, I don't know. That's pretty awesome. Um, How did you know Earl Gans? Uh, he wrote a he wrote a memoir of those years that okay. um, he shopped to Drum Lemon. Mm. Um, but I met him, I guess, mainly through the book I wrote on Butte and Myron Brinnick. He, oh. uh, Gans wrote a pretty famous essay about Myron Brinnick. Oh. Uh, I can't remember the name of the magazine. It was a pretty short-lived magazine, but... Uh, you know, it was an essay that really brought interest back in Myron Brinnick. So. And you need to tell people who that is, because I love My- My- Myron Brinnick, but... Didn't we do an episode on him? No, not yet. Oh, well, we have to. I know. Uh, Myron Brinnick was uh, an amazing novelist from Butte in the 20s and 30s. Who's largely forgotten now, sadly. Even though he was a best-selling novelist in his time, and then he just stopped writing in the 50s. But he was still alive in the 80s, and Gans tracked him down. Oh, is that right? Visited him in New York City, and huh. And he asked him, why did you stop writing? Yeah. And, and Brennick said, well, people just weren't reading my books anymore. Oh, that's, that's a shame. One of the things that's that we've talked about quite a bit, and we've sort of circled around it a little bit, um, so we want to talk in a little more direct terms about sort of the mystique of the Missoula program. And, you know, it seems like a lot of that mystique sort of grew out of Kittredge himself, you know. He's known as this incredibly generous man for his teaching, which, you know, a lot of people talk 
glowingly about how much he changed their lives and encouraged them and all that. And of course, he did Last Best Place, which is he and Onik put that together, which was the anthology of. Yeah. Well, at least many people feel that it's like the the last word in the Montana anthology. I think other people were critical at the time of stuff that they left out. Yes. But up to that point, there'd never been anything like that except Montana Margins. Right. Joseph Kinsey Howard's yeah, yeah. anthology. So, I mean, they really did yeoman's work. and Yeah, and of course... And, and it's time. a hernia-inducing <clears throat> Yeah, it's huge. And of course, anytime you do something like that, you're going to get some people that are critical of who's left out. That goes with the territory, I think, but... As far as focusing on his writing, I, I enjoyed Hole in the Sky. To me, this book felt like sort of a rehash of this, a lot of the same stuff that he talked about in Hole in the Sky. You know, I, I've had a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that he's become such a legend as a writer. I get it for the other stuff, but... Uh, yeah, as a mentor and a, yeah, you know, somebody who shepherded a lot of subsequently great writers through the yeah and made you know put missoula montana on the map for absolutely yeah you know one of the greatest writing programs in the country Mm -hmm. Um, but i'm with you i you know i've read quite a bit of this stuff and it does seem repetitive or he's working the same themes over you know the ranch growing up on the ranch in oregon and place yes narratives Right, place defines us, and mm-hmm. somehow making that a very Western theme. Although, I really like that uh, Tom McWayne once pointed out that uh, you know this whole fetishization of place is kind of a snare. Mm. I've I've always liked that. Mm-hmm. What do you like about it? I just feel like it's easy to romanticize the West, and I wonder if the whole fetishization of place and place narratives and, you know, this is who we are out West is not just another version of the myth of the West that, you know, you've written about. Right. And I think it's true for a lot of Montanans that, you know, the ranch life is reality, Mm. or fly fishing is the reality, but... For a lot of other people, myself included, you know, there's a lot of urban Montana that yeah that I much prefer. Like to me, Montana is Butte in the corner of Park and Main. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, I I love you know. I just drove down here to Billings and went through all this beautiful scenery, and I sure. I, I love that. But I I I think it's tricky to say that you know that makes us who we are, especially when people are fluid and they move around. Mm. And, yeah, and all places right matter. Yeah, yeah. So he does revisit a lot of the same themes over and over. And, and I guess on top of that, um, what I struggled with with this book in particular, I was watching the documentary with Franny Leibowitz when uh, Martin Scorsese interviews her, her about a lot of things, and she's hilarious. But um, one of my favorite quotes from that whole series was... Um, he asked her, so, so you read a lot of books. He says, um, what makes you decide to put aside a book, to decide to not read it anymore? Does it, does it make you angry? Do you get offended? She says, oh, no, no, that's never an issue with me. I I don't get offended or angry enough to set a book aside. Why, why I set a book aside is because I forget I'm reading it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's kind of what this one felt like. I mean, I kept looking over at it on my bedside and I just thought, oh man, I forgot I'm supposed to be reading that book. And I, I just couldn't, uh, I mean, it didn't, it just didn't pull me in, you know. Whereas Doug's book, Hard to God, put down. once I started that thing, I could not wait to get back to it the next night, you know. You know, that's a really interesting phenomenon that I don't think I understood in my youth. But, mm. you know, as I get older, I realize that life is short. Yeah. And instinctively, you know, you you kind of filter out the stuff that doesn't capture your interest. Yeah. Whereas when you're 20, you might suffer through 50 pages of Dostoevsky because <laughs> maybe you feel like you need to or yeah. it's important. But, you know, anymore, if a book doesn't keep me turning the pages, yeah. I put it in a stack and it goes out into the little free library. I just... <laughs> You know, there's so much good stuff. Yeah. So much, you know, stuff that keeps you turning the page. Books you can't stop reading, like mm. Grizzly Years. Yeah. So that, you know, that kind of leads to another topic that we've we've sort of danced around a little bit, too, is a, is it really subjective, trying to figure out whether a book is good or whether a writer's good? There, I think there's probably a reason that the books that become huge... And lasting, especially, there's a reason that happens, you know. There's something there. I agree, but, you know, it's it's such a thicket of philosophy to, yes. get, to get into, you know, that literary criticism. Like, what are the hallmarks of a, of a long-lasting book? Mm. And I think it's really hard to predict it. And it can't possibly be popularity. I mean, right. you know, John no. Grisham sells way more copies of books than probably... Yeah, any of our favorite writers, but will people still be reading that stuff right. 500 years from now? And, you know, one really instructive thing I think that is fun to do, and I can't remember the author of the book, it might be Michael Durda, but he went through all of the best-selling books of the last 100 years, so, you know, looked up in the archives what books sold the most copies in 1900, um, and, the, you know, the top 10 bestsellers, and then you know, most of the books he didn't recognize at all. Mm, like mm-hmm. nobody reads those books anymore, yeah. and yet they they were the best sellers of the of the right, day. Right. So there is something that you know, some winnowing feature of history that you know, people say the cream rises to the top. On the other hand, maybe it's just a lot of English professors who say that mm. these are the best books year after year, and then mm. they go on to teach other students, and their students teach students, and. So here we are, 400 years later, still thinking Shakespeare is the be-all, end-all of English yeah. literature when, you know, who knows what was passed over. Right. So I think it's a tricky discussion to look at, you know, what seems to be the the really good stuff now mm-hmm. versus the stuff that has been neglected. And, you know, right. we've looked at a lot of these books, Montana Gothic, for example. Yeah. But, Comparing that to, you know, we've... We've cut, we've talked about a lot of writers from Livingston, because there's so many good ones, you know, him and Tim Cahill and Tom McGuane, Tom Jim Harrison, yep, Earl Craig, sort of, yes, um, Gats, Mark Bodine, yeah. So I I I struggle with the fact that Zula has such a mystique about it. You know, there's a lot of solid books that come out of there too, but and we you know we've talked a lot about. Our own favorite Missoula writer, Rick DeMurinis, and he, he wasn't even that 
popular in his own town, much less no, the rest of the world, you know. <laughs> it's really true. I mean, of all those Missoula writers, the one that I would rank up there with the yeah. Livingston crew is Rick DeMarinis, and he just never seemed to have gotten his due and was always overshadowed by his, you know, and these were his friends. Uh, yeah. Jim Welch and he. I went to and, a panel where they, you know, honored him for, I can't remember what it was, maybe he was given an award for the Montana Book Festival one year, but... Yes, he was. Um, so all those guys were there, and, you know, they spoke glowingly of, of him and everything, but he just never got any traction, which is, you know, fascinating. It's, you know, why, why does that happen? It's, well, I think, you know, you touched on it earlier when you were talking about the writing program at U, UM... You know, for decades, Missoula was kind of the cultural center of Montana, or people mm-hmm. thought of it that way. And yep. Bozeman was sort of the, you know, redneck yep. agricultural mecca. But I think that's changed dramatically. Yeah. And definitely. You know, MSU is now the, you know, flagship university of the state. And right. the enrollments are going up, and Missoula's are declining. And. Hi- and there's a lot of factors, a lot of things are going on in higher ed, but I think there's also just something about the decline of the humanities and mm. maybe this insular sense of yourself has a tendency to implode. Yeah, well, I think that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating. You know, I've been close to mothers with cubs uh, 30, 40 times, and... Uh, I mean, quite uncomfortably close for most people, mm. but it's really not a threat. It's much safer than, say, running into a male grizzly during the mating season or a big bear defending a carcass in the summertime. Mm. You know? and, uh, they, they don't care about you. All they care about is the safety of their young. Mm. And that's, the, you know, that's the, the simple and gigantic... Uh, rule of behavior in grizzly country. Mm. You know, just don't be a threat to the cub. Mm. That makes sense. You know, one thing I was thinking a lot about while I reread this is it's 30 years now since it came out. And what do you think about the status of grizzly bears now as opposed to the 70s or 80s when you were writing this? Do you think things are better or worse or... Neither, really. You know, I mean, I had to form an organization. You know, I fought the delisting back in 2007. Mm-hmm. You know, the Federal Wildlife Service delisted the grizzly, and I fought that and I went to court with allies, and we won. You know, my friend Doug Honnold argued that one. And then I, in 2016, when they delisted them again, I had to form an organization, Save the Yellowstone Grizzly, just, you know, to get, uh, to fight that battle. And we won it again in federal court twice. It's on the docket again now, isn't it? Aren't they? No, uh, no I had, I had uh, almost an hour, you know, one of those Zoom calls with the new director of the Federal Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm. It's Martha Williams, who was head of the Game and Fish, and she was you know, basically my enemy. Although she was mm. over there. Because Montana is just murderous on mm. wolves, grizzlies, and bison. Mm. And under Gianforte and this new legislature, it's, they are yeah. definitely the enemy. And so after at least 30, maybe 40 years of 
fighting the Fish and Wildlife Service, I am ready to bury the hatchet for a while, you know, because they're going to be the only protection from, right. you know. Uh, I also like that there's like a few outliers in Missoula. Like, I don't think Kim's Zupan necessarily hangs out with the other guys up there, but I loved his book, The Plowman. Right. Um, Great Falls guy. He's from Great Falls. Oh, is he? he? In but he lives in Missoula. Yeah, yeah he's lived there for and, a long time. And, you know, time. Melissa Stevenson. We, right. We had her on exactly. the show. and She was great. Smith Anderson. Mm. Um, he, he's another one we should mm. we should do Fourth of July Creek at some point. So, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, it's just it's just interesting to sort of explore and ponder um, what brings someone a claim. It's, it's, uh, it's mysterious, I think. It's very mysterious. We've, we know a lot of writers that... Uh, we think deserve a lot more acclaim, like like Alan Jones and. Well, I, th- I think there is some connection between. I mean, the more I think about it, the more obvious it becomes. Uh, when you're talking about literature with a capital L, yeah, the arbiters of that category are academics. Ah. Yeah. And that's the university. Right. And oh, yeah. These guys all worked for the university. There you go. So. You know, Hugo and Kittredge and Welch are all associated with UM itself. Right. You know, so they they have this whole academic apparatus behind them. Whereas McGuane, Harrison, yeah. that crew, Gats, right, are not. Yeah, academic. they were all kind of freelancing down here. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you have this whole machine. That, yes. Right. That's sort of propelling the. The sense of not just the writers themselves, but the themes. Yeah. Like the place narrative. Yeah. You know, the that's all got this built in PR right. machine. Yeah. That, that, that I think it's important to say that it's not just PR, it's got credentials because it's mm. academic. You know, I, I, I struggled with how to approach this episode because, you know, I met Bill a couple times. He, he, um, helped me and Lynn Stegmer, Stegner when we were working on, on our anthology. He and Anik had dinner with us, and, and they were, couldn't have been more supportive and encouraging. Would you say a few words about William Kittredge, since he, he's oh. the guy you wanted us to read in conjunction with you? Oh, Billy, God. <laughs> well, Ed Abbey and I met Billy at the same instant hmm. at uh, a bar in West Glacier, Montana. Wow. And that month would have been uh, in the late 70s. And Billy was doing an article for Outside Magazine. Anyway, he came up to see me at my lookout. And uh, it took him all day to get up there. <laughs> but uh, he and Anik and the, and the twins, you know, mm. Andrew and Alex. They were 14 at the time and the most per- you know, precocious kids I, I'd ever run into, you know. And they they made a, a tape because I had missed the classic rock and roll in Vietnam. You know, we didn't get any uh, mm. radio where I was, you know. We got nothing, and I, I worked all day long, you know. I was the only medic, and often I was the only medic for, you know, two to four, 3,000 people. Closest wow. thing to a doctor they'd ever see. Jeez. You know, I, I just I ran from daylight way into the night and just didn't have time for anything. But Billy, you know, Billy actually, I was writing Grizzly years at that time, and he actually looked at someone and made some notes. It's the only, oh, really? only writing teacher I've ever had. 
was uh, Bill Kittredge and, you know, uh, and, you know, we just got to be good friends. And we collaborated. We were going to do a film together on Grizzly Bears for the Audubon Society. Me and Anik and Billy and uh, Dan Sullivan here in town and uh, John Klein. Hmm. And uh, my kids, when they were little and growing up, spent a lot of time at Bill and Anik's place out in the Black Feet, hmm. you know, up at uh, Potomac. And he, he's, he's just been... He, he was a great friend. I'd see him. He'd come down to the desert. He liked to play golf. And he said, Doug, you know, you should write for Golf Magazine. They pay two bucks a word. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 of course, I didn't, but uh, he had a point. But I loved Bill, and he was, you know, just one of my close friends. Uh, he, he, didn't, he wasn't much of an outdoorsman, so I didn't see him that way like I, you know, Spent months with Ed Abbey and Peter Matheson. Even Jim Harrison went camping with me. Mm. Jim Harrison, outside of his trips with me, didn't camp, didn't no camp. matter what he said. <laughs> huh. uh, but uh, how, how did you meet Ed Abbey? That, well, I, um, it was after my first grizzly season. I went down to Tucson, and the father of a junior medic that, that I recruited uh, was Edward H. Spicer, a famous anthropologist. Mm. And he basically took me into his home, mm. you know? And uh, so I'm down there, and through the Spicers, you know, Tucson was not a very big literary community. Mm. You know, uh, there was a neighbor, Alan Harrington, who was a novelist, and uh, they, they threw parties all the time. And through Alan, I met Bill Eastlake. And Bill Eastlake, you know, I got to be good friends. And uh, I, I, he was going to take a trip to China and cover the war at the same time. And so Bill and me would play uh, ping pong to get him ready for the Chinese. <laughs> and, you know, I got to be pretty good in those days. Billy was really good. Huh. And, and one winter night, I think I was working as a... Actually, I got a job as a part-time mailman, you know, and uh, but Bill invited me over to his house, new house in the desert, was over uh, by the foot of Mount Lemon, where the Mount Lemon Highway went up. And in, in, in those days, in 1968, you know, there wasn't anything out there. It was really, you know, so I got on my motorcycle from about 15 miles away and drove over there and went up and down all these goddamn dirt roads <laughs> looking for Billy's place. And finally, you know, I saw it and, and uh, went in and uh, sat down and there was, you know, some people around, writer types, mostly. And uh, I took a, a I, I, I sat down on a couch and I, and in those days I smoked uh, cigarettes, but I rolled my own, you know, so I had a little baggie of Bugler tobacco <laughs> and some, you know, zip papers, and I rolled a little joint-like cigarette and tried to light it in my hand. I was so cold, it was winter night, you know, mm. it was like December, and uh, um, I couldn't, I couldn't light my cigarette, and this guy that's sitting next to me with his dark beard uh, reached over and gave me a light, and that was Ed Abbey. Mm. And uh, we talked about mountain lions that night. Hmm. 
He'd just written an article for Life magazine. Mm. I know everybody loves Desert Solitaire, but my favorite book of his was the one he wrote right at the end. The that's a good Progress. book, man. It's that's that's you're right. So unlike everything else he did, and it's Nietzsche. just I, going I, back to. I Earth. agree with you. Yeah. What was the name of it? Fool's, Fool's Progress. Progress. Hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> he resented the success of the Desert Solitaire because you know, like many pompous writers, you know, he wanted to be recognized for his fiction, not his non-fiction. Yeah. And he felt he just kind of threw that book off. It was really mm. easy to write, you know. I also, uh, wasn't his first novel The um, the Last Cowboy? Uh, yeah. Or at least an early novel, and no one ever that's talks about one. that, but, and, and but that's he, awesome. It is. They made a movie of that, yeah, right? Kirk With Douglas. Kirk Douglas. Yeah. Now, I've seen that movie a bunch of times. That was a great movie. It's, I was at the Telluride Film, the Mountain Film Festival many times as a keynote speaker. Peacock's War, a film, you know, what mm. premiered on Nature, won the grand prize there. Mm. When Ed Abbey was supposed to be the, the keynote speaker, he died, so I filled in for him and oh. shit like that. I was under board for a while and all that. Well, anyway, they show, they show that black and white version of... Uh, you know, the Brave Cowboy. Brave huh. Cowboy, yeah. And Black Sun was one of Abby's favorites, by the way. I think Douglas really fought to get that movie made, right? It's his favorite role. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see, Dalton Trumbo, I think. Right. Oh, that's wow. Right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, he wrote this That's company. awesome. So, it, it sounds like you weren't really driven to write this book. You, you know, you got an offer for it. So, I'm just curious whether... You experienced any kind of, uh, I mean, did writing it um, help you get through? No, it's, you it know. Wasn't, it wasn't like that. <laughs> um, huh. You know, the experience has always been primary for me. Yeah. And then okay. if, if I think a story needs telling, you know, I'll, uh, and I, I should share it. Yeah. Later on, I'll, I'll write, it, write it out. I'm, you know, I've only, I don't publish, I've published six books. So, I wanted to ask about um, when you and Andrea published your book about grizzlies. I went to one of your readings, mm-hmm. and it was right after I had watched Grizzly Man. Yeah. So I asked you about the oh, that's it, right. the guy yeah. that got killed there, and and um, I remember you. Your answer was kind of uh, vague, but I you sort of indicated that he the way he approached that whole thing was not the right way well so you know he thought, you knew him right yeah he came to me in his first year okay and visited me in my what backyard was his name? To, timothy treadwell right yeah and uh, so he was in southern katmai down on the alaskan peninsula mm-hmm. it's a alder thicket with a bunch of little streams salmon streams coming into it it's sterile and, uh, you know, the Grizzlies would be in there from the first run to the end of the year. Mm. And I told that story about my daughter. Well, the only, that kind of behavior is possible mm. in Yellowstone or Glacier if you just behave the right way. Yeah. But, you know, where, where it really does happen is on salmon streams. I've had a mother grizzly, and this is, again, up in the Taco River Tlingit a, a band of indigenous people that uh, we partnered with and we're still up there round river you know i was chairman of the board for 25 years and co-founded mm-hmm. but i i i retired when i had to start this yellowstone grizzly thing 
you know. So was his mistake trying to get too close? To no, him? he he had those bears would you know do that to him. You know, he was out with them on the beach every day. Yeah. And they're right next to him. Right. And, you know, they, they didn't care because they exhibited this kind of behavior all along. What he did is he stayed too long. Oh. And, you know, he stayed too long. He went and had a fight with an airline ticket person, you know. Oh, oh that's right. And, 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 and uh, Kodiak. And then he went back. The tragedy was that he took... His girlfriend. His girlfriend. Yeah, who yeah. was the daughter. I, I was on the Brain Coast Conservation Group. I was a board member, and so was her father. Oh. And this was his daughter. and That was horrible. That was horrible. I felt yeah. really, really bad for her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, he did what he always did. He, you hear a bear in the night. And the only place to camp up there... Is in these yellow thickets that are just honeycombed with grizzly bear trails, mm. and they bed in there. Everything, so mm. you know, you you can't get away from them anywhere. And there was a grizzly bear that got into their food, and he went out to run it off, which he had done many times. Mm. But this time, the salmon run had failed. Oh, and there wasn't any food around. So the bear and this was, and late in the late in the mix of bears that come in to feed on salmon. You know, when it, when it really fails, the big males show up that are, you know, and they run everybody else off. You don't see any family groups late mm. in the year. And that's, uh, that's what he encountered. And oh. the grizzly bears attacked him. She went out to save his life, mm. hit, hit it with a frying pan. You know, they fought, but, uh, you know, yeah. they, they died, I think, you know, courageously. But, mm. He went back too late. Mm. It was, you know, the nice, cute bear scene was dead. Mm. And Werner Herzog, who, you know, yeah. leans on every shot an uncomfortable two or three seconds. You know, the shot is over. You know, he, he lingers the canyon while Timothy makes it clear to at least the camera that he's doing this to make a movie of himself, you know. Mm. And... Uh, just so he can stand up in the end and I don't see no cutie bears. All I see is the cold, indifferent face of nature. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's the end of the movie. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I mean, I'm a great fan of, you know, Gary, Wrath of God, one of the great movies of all time. Yeah, yeah. That was a great movie. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> Grizzly Man was really It was a hard movie to watch. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, you got a book coming out. Oh, yeah, I do have a book coming out. It's going to be published. They lied to you, of course. You know, <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be published in October of this year. Okay. I got a buzz writing it because I wasn't sure I could write anymore. Mm. What's you know? the name of it? Was It Worth It? Mm. <laughs> oh, that's great. great. Title. Yeah. Huh. It's sketched on a rock out where I buried Ed. You know, there's. 160 miles end to end, you know, no roads. And I've hiked it seven times end to end and once from I-8 down to the Mexican border. And so, you know, it takes me 10 days. Mm. So I spent a lot of time out there. And in the wildest, most remote parts of that desert, scratching a boulder was named John Moore. Mm. Was it worth it? Wow. On four different rocks. That's amazing. Yeah, that is cool. 
So did you find out the answer to that? I don't know. I have no, I've never been able to find out anything about John Moore. We also need to add, Kittredge and Onik produced an incredible film. Heartland. Heartland was an amazing movie. Yeah, I think I was like 10 or 12 years old when that came out and saw it at Second Story Cinema in Helena, Montana. I mean, I saw it three or four times. Mm. It was... And it's based on a memoir from a right a young woman who came west as a homesteader and lost her husband. And I think it was, it was Wyoming, though, wasn't it? it was, yeah, I think it was Wyoming. You're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah. But it was so. Uh, and they wrote the screenplay and they directed the film. Is that right? I don't think they directed it, but they they produced it. It was authentic. That's what I loved about it. There was no frills. <laughs> and you know, one other thing we probably should mention is. You know the whole Missoula thing, and how a lot of these guys were characters too. So mm. it wasn't; it was beyond writing. And, yeah, you know, Crumley right. holding court at Charlie B's or yeah, they Daddy's had Bar and reputations. Hugo out at the what was the place out at a what's the log in town out there Bonner? Mm. Always drinking at the Bonner Bar. Mm. That was a time when when uh, drinking was a huge huge part of the culture and especially the writing culture. Um, and I love that another quote by Tom McGuane, who said that uh, drinking is the black lung of writers. <laughs> uh, that is pretty damn true. It's interesting how that's changed a lot, though. I mean, we know a lot of writers, and it's just not that way anymore. I mean, when we get together, we don't. There's not these legendary <laughs> parties anymore. It's more like just hanging out. So it's well, that's true. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, a lot of the people I know don't drink at all. Yeah. Um, but I, as you were talking, I was wondering. You know, I mean, I wonder if it's something else. Like, I don't know. Are there a lot of writers who smoke dope now? Or mm. I know cocaine was big in the seventies. Right. And Stephen King wrote all those books on cocaine. <laughs> but well, we would highly recommend. Highly, like it's one of our favorite books that we've read since we started doing this, you know, Grizzly Ears by Doug Peacock. Yeah, and if you ever get a chance to meet him, do that too, because he's just a super nice guy. Yep. Hey, Duke lives. <laughs> yes. So join us next time on Breakfast in Montana. Next time, we are very excited to have, um, we're going to have John McLean on. And you want to go ahead and tell, talk about that? Um, he recently wrote a memoir called Home Waters about growing up with Norman McLean. Author of River Runs Through It. Yeah, and it's about fly fishing and family and... His relationship with his dad especially, which is... Mm -hmm. I was surprised. I've always heard McLean was kind of a cantankerous guy, so I was expecting a little different tone to it, but it seemed like they had a really tight relationship pretty close yeah and i i have a personal affection for this uh story also because uh, one of my close friends peter koch yeah you know grew up at Sealy lake in the cabin with the mcleans so the Koches and the mcleans were very really close and so they have sort of a shared interesting literary history yeah yeah so that's gonna be another fun episode well, join us again next time. Thanks for uh, tuning in with your breakfast in Montana. See you next time. Breakfast in Montana is sponsored by Isle of Books in Bozeman, Montana, as well as Chapter One Books in Hamilton, Montana. The music is written and performed by the one and only Aaron Parrott. 
And we'd also like to thank the Montana Arts Council and Drumlinman Institute for their generous contributions. Join us again next time.